I was going to continue on the series we start, started a week ago, but then initially the Lord laid on my heart. Um, that's Communion Sunday, so he kind of laid on my heart to go in something. Not that what we were doing was bad, but to just take us in another direction and something that really is near and dear to the Lord's heart. And then yesterday I was praying and everything and starting to do what I thought was my final review, and he had me totally write a new sermon. So I'm sure it's something that affects us all. I know it affects me as an individual, us as the Fox family, and probably all of our families and our places of work and everything. Amen? So that being the case, we're going to talk about unity. Amen? As Queen Latifah said, U-N-I-T-Y, U-N-I-T-Y. <laughs> I can't remember the rest of it. <laughs> I just remember the U- <laughs> U-N-I-T-Y. <laughs> don't ask me for any more lyrics because I don't remember. So anyway, unity. And we're coming from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 133, verses 1 through 3. Amen. Praise the Lord. So Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. And in bold text in the Bible, it said, A song of degrees of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded his, the blessing, even life forevermore. Heavenly Father, in the precious name of Jesus, we thank and praise you, Lord, for the opportunity once again to partake of your word. Lord, that you be, may, may be glorified in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, and in every aspect of our lives through your word. We praise and thank you, Father, that even as we had the communion bread today, that also we would partake of your your word, amen, which is the bread of life. And it says, according to the word, that out of holly, the, the issues of your word and out of the sword of the spirit, we get deliverance, we get freedom, we get guidance, we get liberty, we get reprovement, we get edification, we get comfort, holly, all those different things that come out of your word. So we ask you, Father, to speak to us, to nourish us, Father, that we would not only receive it in our ear gates now, but also, Lord, we would get it Father, and we will make it applicable in our lives. We command it right now to fall on good ground, not stony ground. We thank you, Father, that it would cultivate the soul of our hearts and our minds, our behaviors and our attitude, that it would be fruitful and produce a harvest, not only in our lives, Father, but into the lives of others that we interact with. We also thank you, Father, that not only would it produce a harvest right now, but it would be something that would lay the foundation, Father, for years and years to come. And we thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. All right, now it says here in bold, it says, a song of degrees of David. And as I think I had said before in a previous sermon series, uh, when they were talking about the song of degrees, um, one of the things they were talking about too is it being a songs of ascent. As people were traveling, they would sing these songs. It would bring them into you know, harmony, not only in terms of what they were singing, but in terms of their mindset, their attitude, their vision, their perceptions of where they were going and what they were about to do. So we see here that one of the things that they were singing is, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. If everybody went around singing that song, we probably wouldn't have so much confusion, dysfunction, so much contention in our lives if we all had the mindset that people would have the attitude that, wow, it's a good thing to be pleasant. It's a good thing to be united. It's a good thing to be in agreement with each other instead of I have my agenda, you have yours. Uh, We don't see eye to eye. And instead of we can agree to disagree, we're just going to bump heads. It would be a great and pleasant thing as we see here in the eyes of the Lord if we walk together in unity. And we have to understand that when God is talking about the words good and pleasant, he's not doing it the way that we do it. Amen. If you look back in the book of Genesis, God looked at creation and said it was good. Just think about that. All these different things I created, a planet, a sun, well, a sun, a planet that's habitable, uh, all the things of nature, the plants and the animals, the fish, the birds, all these different things. And God looked at those things and he said they were good. So what we call good Amen. 
is so much smaller in scale to what God says good. God looks at the planet and all of creation says that's a good thing. Now, to go beyond good to pleasant, wow, I can't even imagine like the heights of elevation from good in God's sight to go from good to pleasant. But yet God says when you walk in unity, it is good and pleasant. Amen. So you must really be pleasing God's heart when you walk around with the mindset of being unified. And he says it's like the precious ointment upon the head. Once again, going with God's description of things, God is calling something precious. We know from the word of God in other places it says precious is the death of God's saints. Amen. Hallelujah. Why? Because it's not like, oh, I'm, so, I'm not happy that you died, but wow, I have you in here with glory with me now. We're no longer separated by things of the flesh and by sin. So God's definitions of good and pleasant are much more awesome than they are in terms of us. But yet he looks at us and says, it is good and pleasant and precious, amen, for you to walk in unity. Now we go a little further. It says, it is good and pleasant for the brethren to dwell together in unity. So the thing we have to ask ourselves is, how are we dwelling together? Amen. How are we dwelling together. The word dwell is not just, okay, we had a good moment where we agreed, but he's saying that it is good and pleasant to dwell. In other words, to go through a period of time where you're inhabiting not only a physical position, but also a certain mentality or an attitude perpetually and continuously. Amen. So when he's saying to dwell together in unity, he's not talking about it's a one day thing or it's a once in a while occurrence. He's talking about this is pretty much the overall way in which I would summarize how all of you are cohabitating. So it's a good and pleasant thing for you to perpetually stay in a mindset and attitude, a behavioral pattern of unity or harmony. So it's good And as I was looking at it, you can see it's good because it not only strengthens relationships and alleviates burdens, but it's also a great witness to those who are on the outside looking in that are able to observe it, and it gives them something to desire in their own lives. Amen? Praise the Lord. Now, one of the things the Lord placed on my heart as we look at unity is Romans chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 14 through 21. We're talking about dwelling together in unity. It says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. All right, now there's two words that the Lord really had me focus on in this. Uh, one of the things it says is, bless them which persecute you. And you'll notice here that he emphasizes, bless them which persecute you. Then he repeats it again, bless and curse not. <laughs> so he's emphasizing the word bless. He said it twice. In the same sentence, God is not double-minded. God does not feel the need to keep babbling. But if he says something and he repeats it, he's not saying it because he forgot that he used the word and he's not going through proper diction and saying, like, I wrote a term paper and, oh, you shouldn't use that same word in a sentence, use a synonym. No, he's saying it because we are dumbed down. So he uses the same word deliberately, bless, those who persecute you, bless, and and. And curse not. Why? Because he wants us to get the word bless into our hard heads. Bless, bless, bless. Who? Those who persecute you. Not the people who get on your nerves. Not the people who offend you. Not the people that, 
they're just not my cup of tea. He said, no, the ones that persecute you. See, it's easy to get along with those that get on your nerves once in a while, you bump into periodically, you see once in a while or whatever. It's, it's easy to bless them. But he's saying, no, I'm talking about that one that's all up in your world, all up in your neighborhood, sees you all the time, and not only gets on your nerves, but that person persecutes you. Amen? They come in after you. He says, bless them and don't curse them. <laughs> what does the word bless mean? And I think sometimes, oh, at you, God bless you. You're saying God bless you, you ain't really blessing them. I mean, you're you saying a nice thing, and you are, in a sense, blessing them because they sneeze, and you're hoping that the cold or the allergies or whatever goes away, but you're not really sitting there profoundly thinking, Lord, I speak the blessings of God in their life as I say, God bless you. No, you're saying God bless you. There's people that are unsaved and don't even believe in God. There's probably atheists that, by habit, might say God bless you because... That's the thing you say. Some people say gazunheit. Some people say God bless you. But when God's saying bless them that persecute you, he's not saying a light thing, a fad, or the thing that people are saying when they're polite. He's saying, no, I want you to deliberately, despite the fact that they are persecuting you, bless them and don't curse them. That means not only on the days where you're not around them that you bless them. God, I'm praying for those in my life that I love and they're near and dear to me and I'm blessed, ask you to bless them and their needs. And Lord, that person that gets on my nerves, I'm not there today. I ask you to bless them. They're saying, no, even in the act of them persecuting you, bless them and curse them not. So the definition of the word. According to the Greek, the word bless means to speak well of. They're persecuting you. You're such a nice person. You're not just blessing them like God bless them. No, you are speaking well of them despite the fact they persecute you. He's a great guy. <laughs> and we all fail in that. <laughs> he's, a, he's a great guy. Oh, he's, well, I know he gets mad sometimes, but you're just, you know, he's probably going through something. So you're speaking well of the person, even despite the fact that right now they might be persecuting you. That's a hard thing. We probably all, I know I fail in it. It says to speak well of them. Here's another thing. It's one thing to speak well of them because you know this is what God's telling you to do, but you may not actually feel it, but you can say, oh, I can speak well of them. I don't really mean it. But it says here to thank or invoke a benediction, prosperity, or praise upon. That's a whole other animal. It's one thing to say, God, bless them. Lord, well, I'm not going to speak negative about them. I'm going to speak well of them. But it's quite another thing to say, I'm going to praise that person. I'm going to speak praise and prosperity and all these things of God upon that person's life. That's a whole different thing. Amen? That we all fall short of. And it says here, instead of, you want to bless them instead of what? Curse them. He says, curse them not. The word curse means to declare to be evil or detestable. And sometimes we think it's true. They are detestable. They are evil. They are mean, green, grinch, and I'm sure we could think of a lot more things and adjectives to say about that individual that a lot of times are accurate, especially when you've already extended yourself and, as they said, you know, put the, the, the olive branch the white flag of surrender, set conditions of peace to negotiate a, a, a peace treaty. You've done all these things, and yet the person still persecute you, and God's saying you are not allowed to declare them to be evil. You're not to find them detestable, and you are not to detest them utterly. God said instead of that, I want you to speak highly well of them. I want you to heap praise upon them, and I want you to asks of me for them to prosper in their life. Wow. <laughs> Not only have we, before sin, fallen short of the glory of God, but I think we fall short of, of this. <laughs> I can think of a few people right now that I have, you know, not, I have not blessed. Amen. I'm sure we all have people that are coming through our mind right now that we have not 
spoken prosperity or, or heap praise upon. And the thing is, sometimes we do speak blessings in their life. God, despite what they're doing, asks you to bless them. But to get to the point where praise, I could praise them and who they are and their character, that's a harder thing when they're getting on your last nerve. And like I said, as we see here, bless them which persecute you. He's not saying those who have. He's using present tense. Bless them which, right now, persecute you. That's hard. Then the next parts aren't as hard. Rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Not as hard. Be of the same mind toward one another. That's saying we should have a united mindset. And it says, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Some of us have condescended to men of low estate, but it's not the right kind of condescend. <laughs> we look at people with a condescending attitude. I'm better than you. You're scummy. I'm pure. I'm holy. You're defiled. So we have condescended. We brought ourselves maybe lower, looked at people in a condescending fashion, but that's not the condescending God is talking about. The condescension he's talking about is more like a humble mindset. See things from their perspective. That's not saying that you join with them and become like them and act their way. He's saying, like, instead of you looking down on them and speaking things about them and calling them detestable and unholy and a bunch of heathens and all these different things, he's saying, bring your mindset down that instead of you looking like you're so much better than them, and you may be righteous and they're unrighteous. You might be saved and unsaved. He's saying condescend towards your attitude. So when he's saying mind not the high things, he said don't be so high-minded that they're just coming to earth and you're in this lofty perch above them. He's saying instead condescend, bring your attitude down to a place of humility, amen, where you can have mercy upon them. And that way you won't speak about them being detestable and unholy and a waste and they'll never change and they're not about anything and they'll never be anything and they're just miserable and they're depraved and God, you don't know. Instead, bless them because you brought your mindset down. Amen? Hallelujah. So we are high in terms of the standards and the principles of God and walking in obedience to them. Amen? We are seated in heavenly places, but as we look at them, we're not from this lofty perch where we become the Pharisees of this world system and this day and age but instead we bring ourselves down in terms of our attitudes despite how they're acting lord bless them because i am seeing them from an elevated place but in terms of my attitude i'm in a place of humility like jesus christ towards them so we will not declare them to be evil or detestable we will not detest them utterly instead we will speak godly things and prosperity and praise upon them and speak well of them now, as we saw, it says that unity is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard. Amen. This is really um, tying into Moses' anointing of Aaron as a priest. And he poured anointing oil over his head and it started to run down. Amen. Upon his head and then it went down and it soaked his beard and it started dripping down off his beard onto his clothes. And then it was so much it started flowing down to his garment. He's saying unity... It's like that. So one of the things is I'm looking at this and seeing that in our text scripture, it says it's like the precious ointment that flowed down through these things. And even as it went down Aaron's beard, and then it went down to the skirts of his garments. The skirt, they're talking about the hemline. But if you're saturated from head to toe and this stuff is just continually flowing down and it's all over the place, it's all over your face and your beard and your clothes and everything, and it gets down to your skirt and the garments, it doesn't stay there at the skirt. It starts to drip down onto the ground below leave a puddle so what that showed me is that if unity is like that that means that unity within us not only flows through me and into my relationship but now it starts to flow and leave a, a puddle in the places that i've left behind amen you got a leak in your car and you pull off in your car and you see an oil stain or something like that on the ground where your car was parked Matter of fact, sometimes mechanics will do that to find a leak. They'll fill your car up, run it for a while, and then they say, okay, let's look either with a die or looking underneath your car or looking around your engine. Let's see evidence of 
moisture because we know something leaked. So in this case, unity is leaking from you off into the places that you've left. And you see a residue of it remaining hot behind. So it becomes a good residue, not a bad one like you would see with a car. So it flows through the head. We see here he poured the ointment of the oil upon his head. It flowed from the head. And the head is representative of your emotions, your vision, your direction, your reasoning, your perceptions. It goes from the head and then it saturates you all over. As we see, it goes down to his beard and goes on to his garment. So it soaks in and it saturates your whole being. And then, as I said, it leaves a puddle behind as it gets down to the skirts of your garment and then it drips into the ground below. Now, the Lord next gave me Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech ye that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that. It says, in the bond of peace. A lot of times we think of bondage, we always think of a negative thing. Oh, we got a bondage. We got a stronghold. We got something to be delivered of. God says, I want you to have a bond, an attachment, a connection, a chain attached to other people. But instead of it being a dysfunctional, ungodly thing, I want you to have a bond, an attachment, a cord, a chain that's representative of peace. So the connection is a godly thing that God says, oh, you can attach as many people as you want with this one. I want you to have a bond of peace. And he says to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So this is something that not only do you have it one day, but he's saying you're supposed to endeavor. In other words, to pursue or to work at this process of keeping a spirit of unity in your lives and in the people that are surrounding you. Now, one of the things that I notice about this, though, it says that I beseech you that ye walk Worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. That word walk means to live and deport or conduct oneself all around as. So you're not just walking with forbearance, which is patience, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and a spirit of unity in one place. But it's basically saying that as you walk in this, this is something that you carry with you everywhere in your conduct. Not only your conduct, but it also talks about your deportment. Your deportment is more like your characteristics, your nature, the air you represent, the aura surrounding you. So whether you speak or not, there's an atmosphere of peace that surrounded you all the time wherever you go. Amen? So he's saying, and Paul, and he's actually begging here, I beseech you that you have this type of walk. I plead with you that you live and deport yourself and conduct yourself all around as somebody. It also means to be occupied with or to follow. So you're following the pattern of walking in peace. You know, you're preoccupied with it or occupied with it that I have a mindset that I'm trying to live in such a way that I bring peace with me and unity with me everywhere I go so that even if unity is not there, I'm not somebody that makes the situation more chaotic, dysfunctional, and worse. I'm not somebody that brings fuel to the fire and takes a small grill fire and makes it a house fire. But I'm somebody that even though there might be a fire there, I'm the spiritual fire extinguisher. I put the fire out. I'm the fire department. I'm the fireman. I'm somebody that puts out fires. I don't make the fire worse when I get there. Amen? As a matter of fact, sometimes we're the smoky bears of the kingdom of God. You know, you need to prevent forest fires. So you go there, and you get in this situation, you see a little smoke. Sometimes before you get a full-fledged fire, you see the little smoke because there's a spark hidden there somewhere. And if you catch it in time, you can prevent you, only you can prevent forest fires. Amen? Sometimes you've got to come in and snuff that thing out before it sets ablaze. Because if it goes ablaze, all those trees and all those leaves and all that dry timber, that thing that was a little spark can cause that thing to spoon, explode. And now you've got 150 miles 
of a blaze and wildfires and people's homes are going out and animals are getting killed and all these different things. But yet, if you were discerning enough to come in early on and say, I see a little smoke, let me stop this thing before it, what? Ignites. So he tells us to have a walk worthy, amen, where we're walking in those characteristics. We're not somebody that ignites the blaze. We're somebody that not only puts it out early before it could grow larger, but like I said, we're somebody that comes in and says, I smell a little smoke or I see a little smoke and let me put this fire out before it erupts or let me put this smoke out before that little spark kindles. Amen? Hallelujah. Then it talks about walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And that caught me. That phrase, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Everybody in this day and age is, oh, I'm called to ministry. I'm called to ministry. Everybody's called to ministry. Nobody's called to be the congregate. Everybody's called to ministry. But we see here, God's saying, like, y'all so, you know, obsessed with the mic and being visible and all this. And I'm called to this. And I'm this. And I'm that. And all these different things. He's like. First thing you call to is to walk with the vocation of being somebody that brings unity. Nobody wants that calling. We can preach to a thousand churches but cause chaos everywhere we go. Have no character. Got our armor bearers. And, you know, I don't preach to churches unless they give me a $10,000 honorarium and, honorarium and all these different things and all these different attitudes because I'm called. But we're not called to be presentable and humble and meek and patient and long-suffering. We're not called, amen, to bring unity where we go. So God's like, I'm not impressed. I'm more impressed with you if you are walking according to the call of being a unifier. And I'm not putting down those things and saying that people aren't called to them. Of course we are, amen. But we need to have as much focus on having uh, the call or answering to the call of walking in the characteristics of Jesus Christ. And he's saying here that we are called with all loneliness and meekness. Amen. We're called to forbear one another. We're called to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word called there is just like the other words called in the Greek that we see in other parts of the, of the Bible. That we're called and predestinated. According to his will. Amen. We're called for all this and we're called for all that. That's the same word called there. So this is not a lesser calling. But God's saying that you're called to this as well. Matter of fact, he calls it a vocation. This is a job. This is a commitment and a responsibility that we have to have these characteristics. So like I said, the bond of peace is established through a mindset in which more emphasis is made on Focusing on aspects of our relationship in which we can walk in agreement over areas in which we may be combative. And that's sometimes you'll see. Sometimes people are focusing more on the negatives and the agendas and the things they desire more than focusing on the things that will produce harmony. So he wants us to stress or emphasize or focus more on the things that lead to peace. Amen. And that comes from, like I said, walking in humility, patience, forgiveness, and unity as others, to, I mean, towards others. And we should see this as a divine calling um, before God as much as we see everything else. And like I said, it talks about the bond of peace. This is a connection. It's not just, okay, I'm walking in peace now and see y'all later. Or if I'm having a bad day, I'm not going to walk in peace. He's talking about us having a mindset where we're helping to establish the connection, the bond of peace on a daily basis everywhere we go. Now, one of the things we see here is that, uh, in our text scripture, that is, is that it says that unity is like a precious ointment upon the head. So we see that unity heals like an ointment. And one of the things that the Lord showed me as it relates to that, he brought a story back to my mind. It's from Genesis chapter 33. And we're going to read two parts of the same chapter, but I, you know, so we won't have to read as many verses. I skipped after I read the first few. So the first part is Genesis 33, 1 through 4. 
And this is the story relating to Jacob and Esau. And as you're aware, many of you, um, really wasn't his fault, but, <laughs> well, it was kind of his fault. But Jacob stole Esau's birthright, basically a bowl of lentil, a bowl of stew or soup. <laughs> and he was hungry. And Jacob said, give me your birthright and I'll give you this food. I'll give you this bowl of, of, of soup. And Esau, not, you know, taking it serious, he was like, just give me the food. And Jacob said, no, you get the bowl of food if you give me your birthright. So Jake, Esau, being hungry, said, all right, well, here's the birthright. Give me the thing. And I'm sure he wasn't really thinking, like, yeah, I'm really, really going to give you my birthright over a bowl of soup. But the fact is, even though he may have not taken it seriously, God did take it seriously. Oh, you're going to sell your birthright? All right, your brother really going to get it. Now, once Jacob got it, Esau hated him, and he said, I'm going to kill him. And so Jacob, being a scoundrel at the time, went off about his thing, got himself in trouble, got connived the same way he was connived for 14 years and two wives later. And um, later on got to the place where he wrestled with God to the point where his hip got dis- dislocated. Finally, God said, what is your name? And he said, it's Jacob, which we know God knew his name, but it was a form of uh, or a type of confession. And it's from that point that Jacob, amen, um, was cha- changed around. And now we see him at the point where he's seen the error of his ways. He's now a, a reformed man, and he's come to the place now where he's about to face his angry brother that has wanted to kill him for years. So Genesis 33, 1 through 4. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. And he divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. All right, so we see here, it's finally judgment day. <laughs> After years of being a scoundrel and running from what he had done, Jacob is now cornered. And he sees that Esau has 400 men, and he says, Oh, this might be the last day of my life. So he said, You know what? Let me separate the family so at least I get killed. My family would be saved. So he split them up and sent them off in different directions. And fortunately, he's at the place where now he's no longer the conniving guy that's running from the error of his ways. He's now saying, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to face my brother. I'm going to look him in the eye. And if, even if he takes my life, I'm going to face him because Jacob the conniver is no longer present in my life. So he goes, as we see here, uh, as he's at the moment where he's approaching his brother, it says he bowed himself to the ground seven times. That word bowed in the underlying Hebrew means to prostrate oneself, especially in, in homage to royalty or God. It also means to humbly beseech, to make obedience to, to worship. So in the natural, you just see that he was bowing himself seven times he just basically laid himself out on the ground and i'm sure you know his brother coming up full of you know first anger and rage on got you i finally got you cornered you're not going to escape this time i'm taking your life so he bows down the first time and esau's probably like i ain't falling for that you better get up and be ready to fight because i'm about to take your life bows down the second time you must be crazy. I don't know why he's doing that. You better run or get ready to fight and grab that sword. Bows down the third time. That still ain't going to work. I'm coming for you. Fourth time. Hey, maybe he's really serious. Maybe he really is sorry. Fifth time. Wow, he really isn't going to run. Sixth time. Well, maybe he has changed. Seventh time. The anger in his heart melts and breaks, throws his arms around his brother's neck and cries. Amen. Why? Because Jacob bowed down and um, I lost the word. Prostrated himself seven times. Amen. God's perfect number. 
prostrated himself seven times. And I think it was a twofold thing. I think most importantly, it was the fact that he said, God, whether I live or die today, I bow down before you. You know, I've already confessed my character before you. I'm a changed man. And if the price of me walking in honesty now means that I lose my life today, I'm not going to become the running, conniving scoundrel anymore. Hey, I'm going to account for the error of my ways. And even if it costs me my life today, I'm trusting in you. Amen. I beseech you to take hold of this situation. But I think also, as I saw that it was bowing down in homage to royalty, I think he was also showing a sign of respect and submission to his brother. I know I did you wrong. My fate's in in your hands. If you want to cut my head off, go ahead. I totally submit myself to whatever you feel is the judgment that you deserve to get from me. Amen? Because of that, the, the, the chaos to the point of hatred that was in that situation was broken, and we see that there was a healing in the heart of his brother. All those years of anger, even to the point of, I got you this time, all those years of anger, hostility, and hatred melted and healed. What? Because of the the ointment of unity, submission, and humility that was presented before him. Hallelujah. God bless you. So we see here that he beseeched God to touch, you know, the heart of his brother. And we see also he humbled himself before his brother. And because of that, God honored what he was doing, touched the heart of Esau. And instead of there being a murder committed that day, instead, the unity came forth from that. And years and years of dysfunctionality were now mended. Hallelujah. Now we see here. Further down, it says um, in verses 8 through 11 of Genesis 33. And he said, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, these are the fine grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, nay, I pray thee. If now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at thy hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, because I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. So we see here that Jacob really felt in his heart of hearts, like, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that you receive, um, you know, that you forgave me for the stuff that I did to you. I'm glad that now we are reconciled. But I really feel in my heart and hearts that I want you to take this token of my appreciation and my love for you. Amen. I know I did you wrong years ago. Here's how I want to bless you. And Esau was even at the point now like, no, it's not necessary. I got plenty of stuff, man. I'm, I, I got enough wealth. I don't need that. But yet Jacob felt in his heart, no, no, no. I really, really, really need to do this. So I feel better about what I did years ago. And we see here the graciousness that both of them had towards each other after unity brought healing to the situation. So how much more so, we never know, if we had that mindset, you know, of trying to reconcile situations instead of, you know, going at it for years or dealing with all this dysfunction, how much and how many things we could heal and mend if we had more of a relationship of humility, of prostrating ourselves before God and lifting up situations before him instead of bumping heads all the time or having, having attitudes that we hold on to, you know, and not willing to make any kind of amends for the things we've done. We see here that God brought through this situation uh, a healing and amending that I'm sure cemented them together with the bond of peace for the rest of their days. Amen? Hallelujah. Now, um, we saw not only was unity like a precious ointment that was point, poured upon the head, but like I said, it flowed down further. And we're going to actually see this, that it causes God's anointing to flow. And it also flows not only on you, but also into the lives of other people. We'll see that in the, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was therein and sanctified them. And he sprinkled thereof upon the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all his vessels, both the laver and his foot, to sanctify them. And he poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. And Moses brought 
Aaron's sons and put coats upon them and girded them with girdles and put bonnets upon them as the Lord commanded Moses. So we see here that uh, God sanctified Aaron through Moses and he had anointing oil poured upon his head that, as we saw earlier, flowed down to his beard, onto his clothes, and then onto the skirt of his garments. But we see here it wasn't something that was just done in his life, but also the Lord, if you look early in that chapter, he told Moses, don't only do this to Aaron, but bring the sons of Aaron as well. So it also affects the entire family, amen, that anointing that comes through unity. So that's why it's so important that we do this. It not only leaves something in your life, but it leaves a legacy that affects your offspring, and it's something that you can carry everywhere you go, but as it flows into them, it goes with them where they go as well. So in other words, it multiplies when you allow that to flow in your life. Amen? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. So it saturates our lives, it saturates our offspring, it flows in on us and on them, but it also flows into the life of other people, like I said, if we consider the fact that it flowed down to the skirt of his garment, and then there's probably something that dripped off onto the ground below as he, as he moved around. Now, one of the things that we saw as well, it says in verse 3 of our text scripture, that the Lord commanded the blessing. The Lord commanded the blessing. So one of the things we can see is that the Lord com commands blessing and life where there is unity. And one of the things that he placed upon my heart was 1 Peter 3, 8 through 13. It says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. All right, so um, basically shows us as much as, once again, as we saw earlier, we are called to different things in God, but more so than anything else, we're called on a daily basis to walk in the character of God. And we see here some of the things that we're instructed to do. It says we're to have compassion for one another. We're to love people as brethren. That means love people as if they were our family members. And I know, <laughs> unfortunately, in this day and age, you might say, like, uh, I don't know if you want to use that, <laughs> that analogy, loving as brethren. My sibling can get on my last nerves. So in this day and age, and I guess throughout the test of time, you go back to Genesis with Cain and Abel, um, you might not want to love his brethren, but if God says that's how we need to do it, that means we, we need to do it that way. He tells us to, be, to love his brethren, to be pitiful. Pitiful is not like, oh, woe is me, oh, I'm just nothing. It means to be, pitiful means to be humble, amen? Be courteous. Then it says, as we saw earlier, we are not to render evil for evil. You know, we're not to uh, rail when people rail against us. Contrary to that, it says you are to bless people um, knowing that we are called unto that. So we see that there's a calling once again, not only to the fivefold, not only to ministry, but we actually have a calling in God that we are, uh, he intends for us to walk in love and patience and kindness and humility and different godly qualities. We see here that it says that um, we will see good days if we had the mindset that we want to walk in these attributes. And then it instructs us to refrain our tongues from evil, you know, and guile. We should not be talking in an evil manner towards people. And, um, you know, it just goes on and on. And then it goes further down. It says the eyes of the Lord upon those who are walking in these various things. 
You know, if we're righteous and we're not speaking evil for evil, when people are accusing and, and slandering us, we're not doing the same. It says that God's eyes are upon us and he's attentive to us. And also his ears are open to our prayers. So we see here that actually we're really blessed Regardless of what people do, we have the mindset that we want to walk in patience and peace and love and bless people even though they're persecuting us. And they may not change, but if we're walking in the character of God, we see here that God's ears and his eyes are focused upon us. And he is the one that's going to bless us despite what everybody else might be doing or saying. So I'm sure we can all see that um if we have the mindset of god and we walk according to his attributes no matter how we may feel and no matter what we encounter that if god's guaranteeing us a blessing that's more important than anything we could do in our flesh or out of our emotions to try to get back at somebody for what they're doing or they're saying amen and we see here if you be followers of that which is good who is he that will harm you? So God has basically given us a, a surety or a guarantee that if you're following righteousness, I'm going to be the one that is going to preserve you and, and take care of the various situations that you're dealing with. Now we go to the next chapter. We see uh, another principle regarding you know, walking in patience and unity and love. First Peter 4, 8 says, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. So he tells us if we walk in love, it will cover a multitude of sins. And the thing is, he says not just to have charity, you know, a little dose of it or once in a while thing. He says to have fervent charity. So that takes it up a whole nother notch. So God says, in other words, he's saying we should be full of it. We should be energetic about it. It shouldn't be like, oh, well. I'm having a, a bad day, so I'm not feeling this, feeling this charitable. No, it should be something that we are fervently striving to walk in in a mindset that we should have all the time. Now, one thing I like about unity is that it invokes a sense that we're all in this together. Amen? You know, it really gives a sense of fa family. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 20 through 26. But now are they many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness for our comely parts have no need but God hath tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another and whether one member suffer all the members suffer with it or one member be honored all the members rejoice with it so we see here that God looks at us as being all apart of one body. Amen. And we see here that we may have different roles in the body. You know, the eye has a different purpose, a different function than the ear, the mouth, the feet, you know, the knees or other parts of the body. They have different purposes in the body. But God's basically saying that even though you may have different functions that are important in terms of the overall body, one cannot say that I'm more important than the other. You know, the eye cannot say I'm more important than the hand. It's great that you can see using the eye. But what good is being able to see if you can never grab anything? You know, you can starve to death seeing food, but have no hands to grab it and put it in your mouth to eat. <laughs> you don't see the stomach, but the stomach is very important. You know, like I said, you don't want to be blind, but what good is seeing food if you can't grab it, eat it, and your stomach digest it so now they can nourish the body. So I don't see my stomach, but my stomach is very, very important. Amen? Matter of fact, that's one of the worst kinds of cancer. You know, your stomach goes, I mean, the party's over pretty much. So the stomach is an unseen thing, but, man, it can really shake everything up or even be fatal if it's not functioning properly. 
So it's the same thing in the body of, Christ, a body of Christ. We may have different roles and different purposes, but we cannot say that I'm more important to you because I'm in the front of the church or I'm more visible in the body of Christ nationally or internationally, and yet you're a nobody because nobody's ever heard you or you've never been up front. We all have different po- roles within the body of Christ, but each one of these things are very important. And because of that, we see further down that there should be no schism in the body, but that everyone should have care one for another. You know, if you look at the body medically, uh, even today, scientists are kind of like, and, and physicians are like, well, what's the appendix for? It's not doing anything. What, what is its purpose? It's not important. Let the thing rupture, though. You'll care about it then. You'll be rushing <laughs> to the hospital. They will be opening you up, and they will try to pu- purify your body before it poisons yourself and becomes toxic to the point of death. So even though that little member seems to be inadequate, insignificant, if something goes wrong with it, the whole body cares. All of a sudden, oh, appendix, you have my attention. Priority one, let's deal with that appendix. Wait a minute, you never did anything for us before. You care now, don't you? (laughs) So same thing in the body of Christ. We may not think something is significant, but a lot of times it may be. Amen. I just uh, thought about my boss's father. He, um, I'm sorry, grandfather. He, He basically was a mechanic, and he was sabotaging cars. Nobody knew that you got the United States and all these different people, you know, fighting, you know, in a world war and, here you got a little mechanic that's sabotaging the Nazis' car so that they would break down as they're trying to hunt down Jews. Little insignificant guy. Most people would say, oh, he's not going to make any difference whatsoever in, in the war against the, the Third Reich. He did his little part, though. <laughs> Amen? Everybody might do their little part. And you never know. It might lead to one little thing going wrong in the enemy's camp. It might cost the enemy a skirmish. Or it might be the thing that turns the tide in the war. You just never know. So we may think somebody's not important to the body of Christ, but if they're doing their role, a lot of little things can add up to a big thing. Amen? Nobody thought these little revolutionaries over here in the United States were going to amount to anything. Oh, they're just a bunch of troublemakers. Next thing you know, America's free because of a bunch of little troublemakers. (laughs) Amen? So you never know the outcome, amen, and that came through unity. It's the same thing as well. So we cannot look at anybody as being insignificant or inadequate, but we need to care for everybody in the body, and we need to try to remain unified so that everybody is edified and can walk in their purpose so that all things come together for the good of the whole. Now, um, one of the things I liked about our text scripture is that it says that uh, unity not only is like the precious ointment upon the head that heals and flows down through the body and saturates every part of the body, but in verse 3 of our text scripture it says that it is like the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. And I never really understood. I was like, oh, like a dew of Hermon, that sounds like a great thing, you know. We think about do. I'm sure most of us have walked out uh, of our homes first thing in the morning and we saw dew on the plants. And we see it and say, oh, the grass looks wet or the plants look wet. And sometimes you can get a little fragrance from it. You know, the flowers and the grass, you can smell it probably because of dew on it. But once the temperature heats up around 11 o'clock or noon, the dew is all evaporated. So you quickly forget about it. And so as we read this, we might say, okay, well, the dew is pleasant, but what's the big deal? So I researched it, and one of the things I found out is that the, the, the dew is very important. And we see here that God is comparing unity to the dew of Hermon. Now, Hermon was the loftiest peak in all the land of Palestine. And on the peak of, of, uh, in this area, there was snow which melted, and as it evaporated, it produced rain that ended up producing the, the dew that was found on the ground every day. Now, unlike here where we see the dew and 
it's maybe refreshing, you can smell it, and it keeps the ground a little wet and things like that, and it's not much of a big deal, and you, and you quickly forget it, the Dua Herman was actually vital to the life of everybody in that area. Because being in the desert, even though dew wouldn't seem to be a big thing, as that snow evaporated and it produced the, the, the dew, it, it literally sustained life because it gave the moisture that the crops needed that would sustain their lives. Amen? So it wasn't just dew to them. It was actually sustenance itself. If it had not been for the dew of Hermon, the people in that parched area literally would have died. And we see here that God is likening unity to the dew of Hermon. So in other words, God is saying that not only is dew something that comes from a loftier, elevated place, but as it rains down, it brings life to everybody that it falls upon. Hallelujah. So like I said, we have seen it. Amen. We have seen dew, but without the dew of Hermon, the ground in that surrounding area would remain parched. The people would have literally died not having enough food to eat. And it's the same thing with us. When we're living in a parched place where there is no unity, where there is no dew flowing down into our lives, it leaves us parched. It leaves us emotionally drained. It leaves us without the sustenance that we need, and it drains us of our energy, mentally, physically, emotionally, as well as spiritually. So God wants us to walk in unity so that we can cause his dew to flaw, fall down upon our lives. Amen? Philippians 2, 1 through 5 says, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we see here that God wants us to be on one accord and of one mind. And that means placing our own agenda and desires in lower precedence as we humble ourselves. But the thing is, this isn't some lowly thing like, oh, I always got to humble myself. No, this is the, as we see here in verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If it wasn't too low a mindset for him, who are we to say, well, I got to do it. He did it. We wouldn't be redeemed had not Jesus humbled himself and lived this mindset his entire life. So who are we to say that I shouldn't have to do this? Don't you know who I am? Why do I always got to be the one to, to, you know, submit and to yield and to do this and reconcile and apologize? Why do I always have to be the one? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He set the example. If we want to follow his pattern, he wants us to be willing to do it as well. Amen? Finally, it tells us in our text scripture that unity is something to behold, something beautiful to behold. Because I think our, our, as we got past a song of degrees and bold, the first word in our text scripture was behold. That word behold means look, observe, see this, amen? This is something I want you to see. So unity is something to behold. And he gave me two verses of scripture that I'm going to close out with. The first one is Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. It says here that the beginning of strife, not full-scale argument, but it says the beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. And when we're talking about the letting out of water, Picture a dam that has a small crack that you don't seal, and then after a while, it starts flowing a little more. The next thing, it erodes the wall, and then boom, the wall explodes open, and that water comes out. Amen? Just think of a dam bursting. So that's basically what they're talking about here. The beginning of strife is as one 
when one letteth out water. So God's telling us that when you see it beginning, you need to take the necessary steps to plug the hole, seal the crack, dam up the water so that it doesn't become, you know, this torrential rain or this flowing river that consumes, erodes, decays, and engulfs everything in its path. Amen? Water can flow when properly used. It can flow and bring nourishment and, and, and nutrients that things need. But water can also be one of the most devastating and destructive forces in all of creation. So he's telling us here that you have a responsibility to block off the flow of water when the water that is flowing is contention. If it's water that's bringing nutrients and nourishment and things that edify, open up the floodgates and let that water through. But if it's water that's associated with contention, God's saying you need to call the plumber. Turn the valve a little tighter. <laughs> Put new washers in the pipe or the faucet. Get some cement and seal the crack. Do whatever it takes to keep that water from flowing in your life. Amen. It'd be one thing for us to say, okay, well, I don't want it to affect me, so, you know, I'll just put a little conduit and a little pipe, and I'll divert it over here. No, it's not good to f- <laughs> the avoid the, the, the torrential rain or the flood that's coming to you like the, by diverting it somewhere else. No, you need to stop it. Amen? Plug the hole. Don't divert it elsewhere. Plug the hole. Because a lot of times, when you divert it, next thing you know, it comes back to you, and what was a stream or river is now a typhoon. Amen? So stop the thing at its source, in other words. Seal the dam. Seal the crack. Turn off the faucet. Call, the, like I said, the plumber, who is Jesus Christ, and say, we need to stop this thing before it explodes. Amen? Hallelujah. Finally, the words of Jesus himself. John 17, 15 through 21. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that... Thou should keepest them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So Jesus himself is speaking here, and he's talking about oneness. He's talking about unity, and he's basically praying. He says, hey, I don't ask you, Lord, to take them out of the world. He says, I want them to stay in the world but I'm praying for you to sustain them, to equip them, to strengthen them, to empower them so that they can sustain all the chaos and dysfunction and evil that's there in the world. But yet, in the midst of all that, I'm praying that just as I am in you, that we are all, you know, in the spirit, interconnected so that they can sustain the attacks that are upon them. And as they do that and they walk in my character and in my likeness, through that, the world may believe that you sent me. So in other words, there's a witness that is there to behold when we walk in the character, the likeness, the patience, the love, and the unity that Jesus Christ showed with the Father. Amen? God wants his light to show as a witness into a fallen world through us. And a lot of times, as I said earlier, it comes through unity. Precious is the ointment that is unity. And we see not only is it precious, is it beautiful, and does it flow, but also we see that where it is, God, it doesn't say ask for, thinks of. It says God commanded the blessing and even life forevermore. God commands blessings in our lives, and he also commands life evermore. It produces life where there was death, amen? Death to peace of mind, death to hope, death to to dreams, death to all these different things, relationships and everything. There's death there, but God commands his blessing and he produces life through the power of unity. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, in the precious name of Jesus, we thank you, praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. First of all, Lord, for placing on my heart to uh, divert course in terms of what um, I was thinking I was going to share today. I just praise and thank you, Father. You placed on my heart to um, change our topic for today. And, Lord, um, let us all walk in the power, the freedom, the love, the blessings, the life that are associated with unity. We just praise you right now, Father, that in our lives, in our relationships, at our places of work and school, if there's any areas where there's chaos and confusion, dysfunction and contention, schisms, Lord, that you will bring in unity, Father. We praise you, Father, that if we have not been a solution to the problem, that you will show us, Father, how to become a negotiator, a peace bringer, a truce maker. Lord, if we've even been a, pro- a cause of the problems, we ask you right now to forgive us. Father, we, we renounce and we repent of our sins. And we ask you right now, Father, to show us the errors in which we have failed or fallen short of your glory. We even thank you, Father, even as we had the example of how Jacob w- went back and made um, and helped initiate restoration with his brother through hum- humility, through worship and, and, and humbling himself, Father, that you would show us how to do that as well. And we praise you, Father, that if there are any Esau's in our life, Lord, that as we would humble ourselves and would pray and intercede for them and seek reconciliation, Lord, that you would soften their hearts the same way, hallelujah, that would bring peace and it would mend the broken um, relationships. And right now, we thank you, Lord, that um, you would bring um, unity in all of our relationships, Father, our, our marriages, Father, in our families, hallelujah, once again, in relationships outside of our family, Father, we thank and praise you, Father, that even as your word says that unity produces the bond of peace, Father, we ask you to sever any ties that are ungodly, but yet, Father, you would connect us in the bond of peace with those who we're called to be connected to. We thank and praise you, Father, that it would edify us, it would strengthen us, it would give us wisdom. Father, we bring new people into our lives that we can not only be connected to as you've called us to, but if there's anybody that's currently struggling or um, not living according to your word and maybe even doesn't even know you as Lord and Savior, we just thank you, Father, that as we will walk in unity and you will command the blessing and life to flow into our lives, that you would use us, hallelujah, like the duo of Herman, to bring peace and healing and comfort into the lives of others. And we just thank and praise your Father for this. We give you the glory, the honor, and praise for these things. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.